0: Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Michael Zeller, a doctoral candidate in political science at Central European University. He's here with us today to help us understand far-right demonstrations and subsequent demobilization efforts by government. Michael, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So let's start off with understanding why demonstrations are important. Much of the current concern surrounding far-right movements and social actors increasingly focuses on digital spaces like 4chan and incel culture. So why do we need to direct specific attention to far-right demonstrations?
1: Sure. That's a good question. Um, Far-right movements are, are in the modern world, really, uh, in many instances, centered on those digital spheres. But to understand the importance uh, of demonstrations for the far right, you have to consider their history and how that still resonates today. So the first modern far right movements, uh, the post-World War I fascist movements, asserted their strength through demonstrations. Um, In popular imagination, this is often associated with the Nuremberg rallies. But demonstrations were a central tactic long before that. Mussolini's black shirts, for example, profited enormously by taking control of the streets in many Italian towns, beating off leftists and oppositional activists. And the famed March on Rome, Mussolini's sort of bluff into power in 1922, was another important demonstration. In... Weimar, Germany, too, the Nazis demonstrated as a show of force. Um, Such examples are are pretty abundant in the interwar period. Uh, In the English speaking world, the Battle of Cable Street is probably the most famous, where Jewish and anti fascist activists beat back an attempt by Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists to march through a predominantly Jewish neighborhood of London. Uh, Fast forward to today, and demonstrations remain important uh, for the far-right, for many far-right social movement organizations. Um, Part of this is historical continuity, an element of of tradition and nostalgia with these earlier fascist movements uh, and other far-right movements trying to recapture sort of that glory. Uh, But demonstrations also serve important instrumental purposes. Internally, they can help to mobilize existing members uh, and promote solidarity and and bonding between those members. Uh, Externally, they can help attract uh, new participants. They can facilitate networking between groups. uh, And perhaps most fundamentally, they raise awareness of far-right agenda items and claim a space in the public sphere, which was for uh, many countries after the Second World War, uh, closed to the far right. Even during COVID uh, and and the current emergency, when some far right groups um, were quick to seize on an ideal opportunity for online activism and also for community politics, uh, and when... Demonstrations, for obvious reasons, were a, a less palatable option, tactically, or so it would seem. Far-right groups still pushed to get demonstration mobilized again. Um, and this is what you saw with uh, several demonstrations in Germany um, opposing government lockdown measures, or in England with the Protect Our Monuments uh, demonstrations. Uh, so even, even in non-ideal circumstances, there's still this impulse among many far right groups to organize demonstrations because some of the benefits that they bring, uh, can't really be replaced by digital activism.
0: Thanks for that, Michael. And I think the phrase that you just finished with impulse for organization is really important. Um, and so when these groups are organizing, you mentioned marches. I think one of the common images that people have is, as you mentioned, the Nuremberg marches. So when you say demonstration, what kinds of activities can fall into this category? And have these demonstrations changed over time? Are there new demonstration tactics that are being used by the far right today that are different maybe from the more historical fascist uh, demonstrations that you mentioned earlier?
1: Well uh demonstrations to take the first part of your question refers to all manner of, of public events uh rallies marches um uh, public meetings uh where the far right activists uh activists and organizations are accessible and uh, attempting to project something in the public sphere uh, and these events often become rituals repeated actions that that serve those expressive and instrumental uh, objectives that i mentioned um they have changed uh, somewhat from from earlier um forms of far right demonstrations uh for example in the interwar period There were several cases where uh, the far right provocatively marched into uh, Jewish neighborhoods uh, or or neighborhoods of other minorities. This is much more exceptional uh, these days. It still happens. There were a series of, of very ominous, torch-lit demonstrations by a far-right group in Hungary through Roman neighborhoods. Um, But by and large, that sort of demonstration has uh, been uh, forbidden uh, or prevented by state authorities for just how uh, explosive they can be. Uh, But the fundamental logic of demonstrations remains consistent from those early forms to uh, present-day demonstration campaigns. They still serve those internal and external purposes. Um, And so when we talk about far-right demonstrations and demonstration campaigns, we might contrast this with their private organizing, planning, and socializing. Uh, within far right groups or, or even within the movement, uh, but also with other distinct tactics of activism, such as some of the online spaces that you mentioned. Um, also community politics, uh, that are, are more about individual interactions, uh, or, or local elections for far right groups. Unlike these sorts of areas, far-right demonstrations are intended, as I say, of as a show of force, of mobilizing capacity, and as well as knitting together movement activists.
0: That's really helpful context as we're moving into actually what you predominantly study, which is demobilization efforts. And you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago how state authorities have tried to combat these demonstration efforts. So what is demobilization and why is this important when we're thinking about how to combat far-right demonstrators?
1: Yeah, um, demobilization basically encompasses the way in which activism ends. This uh, can be positive demobilization, such as when a movement achieves its goals, but more often movements negatively demobilize, either because of internal or external pressures. Often such campaigns are are meant as a sort of perpetual motion machine. The organizers just want them to keep going, want them to live up to that uh, ideal of ritual and tradition uh, and to keep serving those purposes of Attracting new activists and keeping existing activists engaged. But external pressures or internal divisions put an end to these campaigns. They demobilize, even if the far right organization behind it lives on to fight another day. So, demobilization works at at various levels of analysis uh, in studying social movements and of studying far-right movements particularly. Uh, And the significance for understanding demobilization processes at all levels is that it tells us something about the life cycle of movements, movement organizations, and individual activists generally, which is something that's received relatively less attention in, in scholarly examination of social movements, And specifically about the far right, it can explain how aggressive attempts by far right organizations to project control onto the streets or into the public sphere can be met by the state and other social actors and what leads to demobilization and what does not.
0: That's fascinating, Michael. And I think that really leads well into my next question, which is, how do you actually track demobilization efforts? Uh, Far-right groups are notoriously uh, fluid, difficult to keep track of. They constantly seem to reform, and then you have actors in multiple groups. So how do you actually track demobilization um, as a scholar and as a researcher?
1: Before you get into the specifics, you have to figure out how you're approaching this sort of study. You have to establish a conception of how demobilization works and essentially it's that demobilization is a process it occurs over time this applies to most of the levels of analysis of social movements whether you're looking at activists organizations or, or whole movements then you have to figure out how do we explain this process in causal terms what is our part ontological view of this demobilization phenomenon that we want to explain. We know from cursory examination of cases that multiple factors impinge on demobilization processes, multiple things are, are affecting. Some of these factors are causally influential at some times, other times not. We know also that demobilization uh, refers to distinct processes, and it's not just a failure to mobilize, a failure to get a movement or a campaign going, even if the sort of parallel parallelism between those two terms might suggest such a symmetrical relationship. These causal characteristics help us to select a or create a method for analyzing the phenomenon. In the specific type of case of far-right demonstration campaigns, the causal characteristics that I alluded to suggest case-based methods. These include case studies uh, in which you can trace the course of individual demobilization processes, but it can also mean multiple comparative methods like qualitative. These methods essentially match with how we think demobilization occurs. And you can contrast this with statistical methods, for example, where, say, variables are viewed additively. More repression equals more demonstration. Um, That's an oversimplification, but the point is that the view of causation in statistical methods is not compatible with what we already know theoretically and empirically about demobilization. After you've established those foundations, you can design studies to look at particular instances of demobilization. And with specifically tracking far-right movements, you you do raise an important uh, issue there because oftentimes far-right organizations are covert um, and very studiously hiding their activities. However, this is not the case when it comes to demonstration campaigns, since the basic idea is to get out on the streets and show what your organization can do, the number of activists it can mobilize. Um, So with that in mind, there's a lot of uh, tracking of far-right organizations in this specific area Um, and the most basic one is is a news report covers how activists appear on on the street what their number was what they were doing why they were doing it how they were met by police and counter mobilizing activists my study uh, which concerns large far-right demonstration campaigns in England, Germany, and Austria between 1990 and 2015. This selection of cases gives some empirical bliss to our theoretical mill and helps improve existent theories of demobilization and of far-right activism.
0: Thanks for that, Michael. I think that theoretical and statistical breakdown that you just gave us is really important to contextualize my next question which is what patterns have demobil- what patterns of demobilization have you identified from these specific case studies and can you give us an example of what this looks like in practice so maybe take us through one of the organizations that you've followed in your research
1: sure um, well first to talk about the the overarching patterns that emerge from Uh, my study. So, looking at 32 cases, uh, across these three countries and in this time period, four patterns emerge. Um, first, there are cases where state authorities exercise a channeling form of social control. And when I say channeling, think of indirect repressive measures here. Um, preventing certain speakers from taking part in an event, restricting access to certain neighborhoods, things which don't, which don't cancel uh, or prevent far-right demonstrations per se, but limit their ability to mobilize. When this sort of action is applied to long-running campaigns, demobilization can occur, and this basically means a closing of opportunity for the far-right organization. Second, there are cases when the far-right exercises coercive social control. And this this means they physically prevent the far-right demonstration. This often occurs with police power, um, where intended demonstration routes or sites are blocked. Far-right activists attempting to demonstrate might be arrested, and when this meets relatively short-lived demonstration campaigns, it can produce demobilization, and this is down to the decisive impact of state repression. Third, there's cases where relatively new far-right demonstration campaigns are met with private channeling, and this is where we can think of civil counter-mobilizations such as protests and pickets or or simultaneous demonstrations to the far-right event. This conjunction of causes can produce demobilization, but it's partially because far-right campaigns have not been around long enough to become strong rituals, and the civil counter-mobilization deters those efforts. And the last type that emerges we could call militant anti-far-right action. Uh, and this is most popularly associated with Antifa, but there are other examples. This coercive social control from private actors uh, is an attempt to beat far-right activists off the street uh, into demobilizing their campaigns. So these four patterns cover the main causal combinations of demonstration, campaign mobilization. And I think maybe just to take one example, an interesting one from the form of demobilization where the state exercises social control, where the state exercises coercive social control, applies physical repression through its policing powers. This doesn't happen without prompting. So in, 19, in the early 1990s, shortly after the reunification of Germany, there was a group of far-right activists who organized a series of memorial marches for uh, Rudolf Hess, famously one of uh, Hitler's main acolytes. They organized a yearly event where they would go to this city in northeastern Bavaria called Wunsiedel and process... Down the main road uh, of the city to the graveyard where Rudolf Hess was buried, and this was thousands of activists in a in a pretty pretty small uh, area, showing that essentially they could double the the population of the uh, town in one day by turning out all their activists onto it. Uh, Eventually, it was demobilized by state authorities stepping in with bans on this activity in uh, the mid and early 1990s, preventing far-right activists from assembling in Wundsiedel and then from assembling in in nearby towns. Uh, And activists who tried were subject to arrest and detention. And eventually... Uh, at least for a time, the far right had to abandon this campaign. But the imposition of state authority here, the the application of these repressive measures, probably would not have happened if not for the fact that uh, Antifa activists from Berlin physically assaulted the far right demonstration in 1991. That caused such Threat to public security that uh, the state felt it had to intervene, and its solution was to ban all demonstrations on this this weekend in which the far right was intending to hold its commemoration. So, when you look at this in sort of a, a timeline view, you see these interlocking uh, events. That act as as like cogs in a machine, the far right mobilizes then uh, this prompts countermobilization from violent oppositional activists, and that pushes the state into applying its course of force. so from this sort of example, we get a a view of demobilization processes in practice.
0: I think that mechanism that you highlighted just at the end where right demonstration breeds counter protests often violent that then pushes a state response I think that's a really clear causal chain that's useful for us when thinking about demonstrations so let's you know as we're wrapping up this episode what does your research tell us about far-right groups and how societies and states respond so what are your what are your key takeaways from your research
1: my research to date, tells us about the multiple pressures that invade against uh, far-right demonstration campaigns. Um, and one of the interesting things is that internal pressure is, is in some ways rare, at least once these campaigns are mobilized. Uh, the far-right can build demonstration campaigns into a coalition um, and build it into that ritual and tradition that I uh, mentioned at the top of the show. Um, Maybe more fundamentally, it's that uh, there's no silver bullet or permanent fix to demobilizing uh, the far right and their demonstration campaigns. This area of movement activism far-right social movements are really quite wedded to the tactic of demonstrations. Um, And that might slowly shift as uh, online activism becomes more prominent, but that's a long development, and demonstrations for the far-right are going to continue to be important for many, many years uh, for the foreseeable future. So. When considering how to confront these or how to address them, uh, it's important to realize that it's not a one to one answer. The far-right activists have done this in this context. this is where the demonstration campaign is uh, situated. so if we apply this, uh, then it's not that simple it It depends on how uh, these demobilization processes unfold. Now, that being said, uh, I think one of the important things that emerges from my study is that um, counter-mobilization is always important. Even in Germany, with its so-called militant democracy, where... The state is at least supposed to be geared towards proactive counteraction against the far right uh, to prevent lapsing back into uh, prominent far right actors in the public sphere. Even then, the intervention of state action rarely occurs without some prompting social action or lobbying. Um so understanding that aspect of far-right demobilization processes underscores the importance of responding to these far-right activities uh, and alerts uh society, uh other social actors to the importance of not seeding that public space. To far-right activists, and personally, that's what I find most compelling in looking at these demobilization
0: processes. Well, thank you, Michael, so much for being here today. For people that are interested in learning more about your research, where can they find you? Are you on Twitter? Where can they find your work?
1: Sure. Thank you again for having me. I appreciated the chance to talk about this. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm I'm relatively new and and just getting going with posting, but uh, you can find me on Michael C. Zeller. Um, And I have articles currently under review, uh, probably up for publication next year with the journals Social Movement Studies and Mobilization. And you can also find out about related research that I'm doing with an EU Horizon 2020 research project called building resilience against violent extremism and polarization, and information about that is readily available.
0: Thank you again, Michael, for being here. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you next time.